All right, well, good evening, everyone. You know, we, um, we were, we were out, um, yes, you know, I mentioned the wedding that we went to, uh, yesterday. We, um, went, um, early, early in the morning, we had the men's group meeting here this morning, uh, not this morning, but yesterday morning. And then we went up to LA, uh, we were there for the wedding and we came back, I think it was close to 10 o'clock last night. And, uh, so it was a lot of driving. Um, and, uh, and, and this morning's uh, sermon was like a blur to me. <laughs> and then afterwards we came back home and I think I just passed out and, and went unconscious for a few hours until, uh, until just uh, before we started the evening service. So. <laughs> so if it sounds like I just woke up, I mean, my voice, my voice tends to get a little bit deeper when I'm um, feeling, feeling the effects of that fatigue, but it's, it's a good fatigue. It's uh, it's a blessing. It's an absolute blessing to be with you guys. Um, you know, reflecting back on, um, just from the time we started, which is um, we're almost at the three-month mark um, from the time we started, um, I, I can honestly say that um, yeah, this even though we went back up to LA and we saw a lot of old friends, including Bill Shannon, he was there at the the wedding. We got to catch up with Bill and Donna. Um, Bill found out by my bee sting, and his response on Facebook was, "You poor baby," <laughs> and he had a baby face uh, emoji. Um, but uh, yeah, we. Um, we had a great time, got caught up with them, but uh, when we came back, um, it, it, it did feel like we were coming back home. Um, so, so yeah, so it's not, and it's, and it's really the, the church that makes us feel like this is home. You know, it's, um, it, it's, it's you guys as a church family. Um, so I, I just wanted to share that with you. We're, we're, um, we're, we're continually encouraged um, just uh, by you guys as part of the church and as we get to know you all more and more and, uh, and we continue forward and, each and every week just learning more from about each other and what God's word says to me and, and seeing how uh, your you know your your wonderful response to it um, it is an encouragement uh, to us so um, just something on my heart there um, but uh, for tonight uh, we are continuing in the statement of faith uh, series here and last week we talked about atonement and um, tonight it looks like our next topic here is um, is a justification. Grace. It's grace in the new creation. Yeah, grace in the new creation. So that, I mean, that, that just builds right off of what we talked about this morning, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's amazing how, how God just ordains uh, these things to, to happen um, in their perfect timing. Um, and when it, when, it comes to the, uh, when it comes to doctrines related to our salvation, um, we can never study this too much. Um, we can never be too accurate about this. Uh, because this is, this is where when um, the enemy attacks... Uh, when the enemy starts to um, push forward uh, false gospels, um, it's going to be the doctrines of salvation that he's going to attack. Um, in, in kind of the area of systematic theology, we call this soteriology. Soteriology is the study of salvation, and, and it involves a lot of this. I know we, we talked last week about atonement. Atonement is part of that. Um, the idea of the new creation, that's part of that. Right after this, we have justification. That's part of that. Um, conversion, uh, regeneration. Um, all those concepts um, all tie to our salvation, and, and they're, they're communicating very different aspects of our salvation. You know, what's amazing is that when we share the gospel, the gospel message itself is simple, isn't it? I mean, here's the gospel. Look, you are a sinner, and you're in, in need of a Savior. And there's no way that you could ever have justified your own goodness before God. You can never stand righteous before God. Um, you needed someone to pay your sins. And the only one that can pay for it is Jesus Christ, right? Um, that's a very simple message. And, and it's amazing um, how that very simple message can lead to someone's conversion. 
Um, but that simple message leads to conversion because it's the power of God behind it. Right? I mean, when you take a look at uh, Romans chapter 1, take a look at Romans chapter 1 with me. Romans chapter 1, and of course, uh, this book, um, you know, when it comes to all of Paul's letters, the, the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians really stand head and shoulders above the others in terms of really speaking to the doctrines of salvation. Um, and Ephesians really emphasizes grace, and uh, the, the book of Romans really en- emphasizes um, the righteousness of God and, and justification, um, which we'll talk about um, after we talk about the new creation. But when you look at Romans chapter 1 and you look at verses uh, 16 and 17, uh, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of of God. So let's start, stop right there. The, the gospel message itself is very straightforward. It is very simple. And we can sometimes get caught up in trying to prove to someone that the gospel is true. We can try to get caught up in trying to prove to someone that what the Bible says is true. And oftentimes what this leads to is people, you know, trying to dig back into archaeology, extra biblical evidences, you know, philosophy and, and really wisdom to try to reason with people. But at the end of the day, this very simple truth it has to be foundational in terms of how we share the gospel, understanding that it is the power of God for salvation. Okay, it's the power of God for salvation. And as we were going through Ephesians, remember, that's that's Paul's emphasis in Ephesians as well, isn't it? I mean, you got, but got through to the, the end of chapter 1. Paul places a major emphasis on us, wanting us to know the power of God. And that led right into those 10 verses at the start of chapter 2. That the power of God, that though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, it made you alive together. He made you alive together with Christ. Uh, on account, because of his great love with which he loved us and him being uh, merciful, rich in mercy. But it is the power of God for salvation, but it's not the power of God of salvation for everyone, but specifically to everyone who, what? Believes. Um, to everyone who believes. And in verse 17, for in it, in it, it being the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, so we see right there um, from the book of Romans just how important um, the gospel is as the power of God. Um, and, and really for people who respond to it in faith, the ones who believe in it, they believe in it on account of God's power um, in, in regenerating um, their hearts. And, and that really kind of speaks to the doctrine that we're looking at first tonight, which is um, the, the new creation. So let me, uh, let me go ahead and read what is said about the new creation. I think we're going to find a lot of this just flows right out of our, our, our verses from this morning. Um, statement reads, We believe that in order to be saved, Sinners must be born again, that the new birth is a new creation in Christ Jesus, that it is instantaneous and not a process, that in the new birth, the one dead in trespasses and sins is made a partaker of the divine nature and receives eternal life, the free gift of God, that the new creation is brought about in a manner beyond our comprehension, solely by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth, so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel that its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance, faith, and newness of life. So there's a lot said there. As always, we'll kind of break that down um, statement by statement um, as we go through. 
But I can say that when we were candidating here at uh, Western Avenue Baptist Church earlier this year, um, that you know, the first thing we looked at, obviously, the statement of faith. We want to take a look at that, make sure that there was no major incompatibilities between what I believe and what this church believes. And in looking at the statement of faith, it's these articles on salvation that I looked at first. I mean, that's the first place I want to go. Okay, let's look at these articles of salvation. Do we agree here? And, uh, and, and you know, fortunately, as we were looking through, I, I, I saw a lot of compatibility between what we believed and um, what was in the statement of faith. And so that was one of the major barriers um, that was removed. Um, but that ends up being a, a real issue with a lot of other churches that may believe something that I think is unbiblical. But as we look at this statement, we'll go through it, um, you know, piece by piece. It starts off with, we believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be born again. Born again. Okay, what does it mean to be born again? Yeah, be made new. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's not being born physically, is it? Yeah, being born spiritually. And we have a, you know, we, we can, you know, if you think about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, um, when did Jesus Christ talk about this importance of being born again? Uh, Nicodemus. Yeah, let's take a look at uh, John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Yeah, and we see this um, Nicodemus came by night, came to Jesus to speak to him. Um, and it, it's funny, Nicodemus' opening statement, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And verse 3, Jesus basically addresses the real question that's on Nicodemus' heart that he did not actually say. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that ends up being really the theme of this entire conversation that goes back and forth, right? Um, Nicodemus is challenging him, and he's responding back. And, and what Jesus says is that these are spiritual realities. Um, these are spiritual realities that has to apply to you, that has to apply to all of us. And so when Paul in Ephesians um, said that God made us alive together, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God made you alive together. Um, with Christ. Um, it's, it's the spiritual life that was given to us um, by God. And so we, we do see that um, very clearly, not only in Ephesians, we see that in the uh, life and ministry of, of Jesus Christ um, in his conversation with Nicodemus. Um, so in order to be saved, sinners must be born again. Um, the next part of our statement reads that the new birth is a new creation in Christ Jesus. And I think there are plenty of places we can go to. Um, this morning, I think I took us to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Um, you can turn there with me. I'll, I'll take a look at that again. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature or creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So let me ask you this. What, what is the significance, I mean, practically speaking, in our lives, what is the significance that we're a new creation? What is that significance? So what? Completely yeah, we're completely changed. And, and how, 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 do, how does that play out in our lives? I mean, what, what should be the effect that people see from the outside? Our desires. Our desires. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I, we, we have a desire to worship God. We have a desire to be with the people of God. Maureen. 
it's more than that. Yeah. It means that as far as God is concerned, everything that happened before that decision, before that uh, conversion, uh, is done away with. Yeah. It is history. Uh, it's buried in the depths of the sea. Yeah. And we have a new start, uh, uh, a fresh new life yeah. in Christ. Yeah, and, and what what you're getting at, I mean, because what you're speaking towards is really the, you know, the idea that everything that we've done up to that point, everything that we've done in rebellion against God has been wiped away. It's 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 wiped clean. And and that um, actually gets into what I would say um, the justification aspect of, of salvation. Um, and, and so you're you're right there. Salvation does include that. And that's one of the most beautiful truths. Uh, but when we think just in terms of new creation, it, true, uh, all of our past is, is wiped away. And, and true also that, that there is an effect that should be seen on us um, going forward in, in our lives. Now, does that mean perfection? No, no, no. That, yeah, yeah, we, we, you know, we still carry the old man with us, don't we? You know, we, we still have the battle of the flesh and the spirit. You see that um, in Galatians 5. And in fact, the, the next part of this statement says that it is... Here's the thing that we, we kind of wrestle with. The new birth is a new creation in Christ Jesus, that it is instantaneous and not a process. And so that part right there, we want to make sure that we understand that um, accurately, that we understand that with precision, what is meant by that. It is instantaneous and not a process. Well, we know that us growing in godliness is not instantaneous, right? Sanctification. We're not made like Christ overnight, no. right? And in fact, even at the day that we die, we are still not perfect. We are promised to be perfect. Um, I mean, Philippians 1.6, look at Philippians 1.6. This verse had actually been on, uh, on, the, on, my, mind, on my wife's mind um, the last few days. She's been talking to me about this, uh, this verse. Um, it's a beautiful verse out of uh, Philippians. Paul makes this statement as he's writing to the Philippians. He says, for I am confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, if you had taken out that last part until the day of Christ Jesus, um, it sounds like there's going to be a point where things are going to be made perfect. But it's a process. When, when Paul says he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, there, there is a process in which you are being made perfect. And it's a process that will ultimately not be completed until you are raised up and glorified. Right? Um, until you've come to the end of this life. But there, there is also validity in the statement that we have in the statement of faith that says that the new birth is instantaneous and not a process. Now, how is that different from what we've been talking about with regards to sanctification? In what way would we say that the new creation is instantaneous and not a process? Once you ask them into yeah, I mean, the moment you're saved, right? I mean, from, from the time that, um, that you responded in faith to Jesus Christ. And, and really, I, and I, I said it this morning, and it, it's worth repeating. The, the, the decision for Jesus Christ, the, the decision that you made to follow Jesus Christ, that itself was not faith. That was just in response to faith that you had as a result of the gospel. You see the difference? So God, through the gospel, through the power of God, he regenerated your heart to understand and to see the truth. And from there, the decision was really a no-brainer. You know, you're, you're essentially just responding to what you know is true. 
what what you know it is that that what you know for sure it is that you need um, that you need Jesus Christ and and His uh, price on the cross. But from that point, from the time that that God regenerated you, He washed you. You know, He He gave you a new nature, a new heart. And in fact, these promises are all over the Old Testament. Um, from that point, you're you're really a new creature, a new creation. Um, so what what we say is that the that the process of you becoming a new creature that's instantaneous. Um, but the sanctification process as you grow to become more like Christ that that takes time that itself is a process and not instantaneous but take a look with me at um, Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 30 fifth book of the Old Testament Deuteronomy chapter 30 Deuteronomy chapter 30 I'm going to take you to a few verses uh, of the Old Testament um, just to reinforce this um, Deuteronomy is going to be the first place. Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is Moses. Um, he's speaking to the Israelites. They're on the verge of crossing over the Jordan to go into the promised land. Uh, Moses is not going to go with them, right? He's going to be struck down. He's going to be killed by God. And Joshua is going to be the one that actually leads them. Um, but Moses really kind of gives um, these last set of messages to the Israelites, um, telling them what's to, what's to come. Um, and, and starting in verse 1, um, he, he really talks about the fact that they're going to turn away. That all of them are going to turn away. He, he had gotten through telling them the blessings for obedience, the curses for disobedience. He said, this is what's going to happen if you obey. These are all the good blessings you will receive. These are all the curses that you're going to receive if you disobey. And then starting in verse 1, chapter 30, verse 1, he basically says, you're going to disobey. And he says, so when, so it shall be when, not if, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, that you call them to mind in all the nations where your God has banished you see part of the curses from god was that look if you continue to disobey over and over again without repentance if you continue to disobey then at some point i'm going to throw you out of the promised land and that is very very significant because when you think about the promises made to abraham to isaac to jacob materially it's centered around that promised land it's that your descendants will will be in the land and they will dwell there forever and i will be their god they will be my people that was the Abrahamic promise. That, that was the promise given from the very beginning. So when they get kicked out of the land, that is extremely significant of God's judgment against them for their disobedience. So that's right here in verse 1. He says, when you call them to mind in all the nations where your God has banished you, he's already saying, look, you're going into the promised land, but you're going to lose it. You're going to be thrown out. Your disobedience is going to be so bad that you're going to be thrown out. Verse 2, and, but when you return to your God, the Lord your God, and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And go down to verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your what? Heart. Your heart. Now, for the Israelites, circumcision was a physical act, right? The, uh, the covenant of circumcision goes back to the book of Genesis. It goes back to Abraham. Abraham was the first one to told, to, told to circumcise himself. That was, only for the men. Yeah, only for the men, only for the men. But that was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. That, that was a sign that, that the, the Jews and the Israelites, they, they were all children of the Abrahamic covenant, that they would be physically circumcised. And even... When you get to the gospel accounts and you follow the life of Jesus, circumcision continues to be a big deal, doesn't it? And in fact, especially in the life of Paul, you know, as he's witnessing to Gentile churches, as he's bringing forth the gospel and Gentiles are coming to faith, guess what the Jews have an issue with? They're not circumcised. How could they be saved? 
So you can see even all the way to the time of, of the, really the apostles, the apostle Paul, as he's starting all these Gentile churches, circumcision, physical circumcision is still a very big deal. You cannot be saved without physical circumcision. But when we look here all the way back to Moses, and this is what's amazing. This is not, this is not Paul saying this. This is not Paul interpreting the Old Testament and saying, guess what? Circumcision was really the more important circumcision was spiritual. No, this is from the words of Moses himself. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to do what? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul so that you may live. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Could circumcision of the heart be a physical circumcision? Does that mean you're going to cut open the chest cavity and no? Yeah, no, no. I mean, the the heart uh, for the Israelites, the heart reflected um, really the center of thinking. Um, it's uh, you know the the mind and the heart are often synonyms in in Jewish thinking. You know, so so the heart wasn't really thinking in terms of the physical organ, but it's really the, the center of all of our thinking, all of our desires um, and, and those kinds of things. So the circumcision of the heart, I mean, that right there is the one of the earliest promises that we have um, that God is going to give us a new heart, that spiritually he's going to regenerate us. Mm -hmm. And it's not just there. Go to Ezekiel. Oh, you know, even before you do that, go to Joshua, Joshua 34, Joshua 24, Joshua 24. So the last chapter of Joshua. So the next book over to the right from Deuteronomy is Joshua. Go to the uh, last chapter. This is before Judges. Um, Joshua 24. Um, you know, it, it's funny when you think about just these patterns. Moses, right, before, before he's going to die, he has this final address in the book of Deuteronomy to the Israelites. And, and he's urging them to obey God. And at the end, he's going to say, you're not going to obey and this is what's going to happen. But you must obey, but you're not going to. But you must obey, right? Um, and then Joshua, when you get to Joshua 30, um, 24, he's getting towards the end of his life as well. Um, and he really calls for all of the um, elders of the Israelites to, to, to come together. And, and he testifies before them. If you read through the entire chapter, he starts off by reminding them of all the good things God has done for them. He's reminding them of all, all the ways that God has blessed them in terms of bringing them into the promised land. By this time, they're already in the promised land. They've done most of their conquering, but they hadn't done it all. But they have done most of their conquering. Um, and so they, they've settled into the promised land. And uh, then you get to verse 14, Joshua 24, verse 14. Here, here's what Joshua wants them to do. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Now, this is interesting, insincerity and truth. So sincerity means from the inside. Right. Okay, worship him from the inside and according to truth. Okay, according to the truth of God's word. So, so don't just be one of these emotional beings that says, oh, I love God, I love God, but I'm not going to pay attention to the truth. And on the other side, don't be one of these that only pays attention to the truth, but on the inside, you're, you're like filthy, you know, you're, you're like a dead corpse, right? Um, there, so there's, there's a danger of cold legalism if you just worship in truth, but in the inside you have no compassion, you have no love, you have no desire for God. And on the other hand, if you're all emotion but no truth, um, then, then you're, you know, you're uncontrollable. You're just basically doing what, whatever you want, you know, whatever you, you think is right. But um, serve him in sincerity and truth. And can I put this another way? When we talk about sincerity, when we talk about from the inside, another way to say that is in spirit and truth. Does that sound familiar? Because in John chapter 4, that's what Jesus tells the woman at the well. 
God is seeking true worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. That's what Joshua is saying here, in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and served the Lord. Which is interesting. They've been carrying around little idols with them um, going back to Egypt. Um, and verse 15, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, um, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites, that's one, uh, the Canaanite people in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Obviously, a very, uh, very recognizable verse. Um, we even have that verse in our home. A lot of you probably have that verse in your home. Um, it's a reminder to us that each and every day we are intentionally um, making that decision to serve the Lord and the Lord alone. But look at verse 16. The people said, answer, it said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We will serve the Lord for he is our God. That sounds like a good response, right? You know, I... Um, I don't, I don't want to read too much in between the lines. They actually never say they're going to put away the idols they're carrying around, but they do affirm they will follow the Lord, their God. And verse 19, look, look at this response from Joshua. Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord. Wow. Wait, Joshua, you just told everyone to serve the Lord, and they just gave you the answer you're looking for, and now you're telling them you will not be able to serve. You will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. You know, they've been carrying around little idols with them. You know, and, and Joshua told them, put away those idols, right? And he said, don't worry, we will serve the Lord. And, and I think part of the reason why Joshua is saying you will not serve the Lord is because they're not saying they're going to put away the idols, right? And, and really, the Old Testament history, what ends up being their main issue is idolatry. They, they start turning to, to, to false gods. But the people affirm again, verse 21, people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, once again, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. Again, I might be reading too much into this, but they never say we will put away those foreign gods. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, that's... So Joshua, even like Moses, he's like saying, look, you're, you're not going to be able to obey. And then turn to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. Um, I, I did a message once that um, re really concluded with um, Ezekiel 36. Um, because when we think about God and his many attributes, one of the attributes of God that we're all aware of, that we're reminded of constantly is that he is holy, Right. The holiness of God. God is holy. The, Isaiah had that vision where the angel said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Right? And just from that vision, Isaiah, Isaiah is like falling down on his face thinking that he's a dead man. 
Um, the, the holiness of God really communicates his, his perfection, um, his, his separation from all things, the, the, the fact that he is sinless in, in every single way. And, and when we are confronted with the holiness of God, we recognize just how wretched uh, we are. Um, but one of the aspects of God's holiness that sometimes we take for granted um, is that God's salvation came to us because of his holiness. God's salvation came to us because of his holiness. Take a look here. Um, let me take you to... So Ezekiel 36. <clears throat> Go to Ezekiel 36, verse 23. What does he say in, in verse 23? Uh, in fact, go back to verse, even further back, go back to verse 21. Verse 21, um, 36, verse 21, Ezekiel says this, but I had concern for my what? holy name which the house of israel had profaned amongst the nations where they went if you read through the entire chapter leading up to this um the lord just talks about how israel continued to just profane his holy name just by turning to false gods with all their abominations with all the ways they were they were just um you know rebelling against god they were profaning his holy name verse 20 says but i had concern for my holy name which the house of israel had profaned and then look at verse 22 therefore say to the house of israel thus says the lord of god Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for what? My holy name, which you have profaned amongst the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned amongst the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you... See, this is the effect of having his spirit and a new heart. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is the promise from God with regards to regenerating us, giving us a new heart, a new nature. But what I love is that according to Ezekiel, the reason why he acts is because of concern over his own holy name. God's holiness is the reason why we deserve eternal judgment. God's holiness is why the wrath of God rests upon us. But it's also God's holiness that he acted in order to regenerate us, in order to save us. Um, and so this, this is just marvelous uh, promises. And one more, go to Jeremiah. Um, I think Jeremiah is probably two books to the left. Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. And, you know, if you read through the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is a painful book to read. Um, it, it is a painful book for a couple of reasons because you, you see these constant appeals from Jeremiah to the Israelites to repent, and they refuse to repent. And you see the pain in his own heart that, that he is hurting, that they won't respond. And he's doing this not just for a few days, not just for a few months, not for a few years, but he's doing this over the course of decades, and they're not responding. 
Um, and so you can imagine why, you know, when he wrote the book of Lamentations, he finally saw the temple of God being destroyed um, by the Babylonians, why he is so emotional over that, um, that he pleaded with all of his heart and all of his strength for the Israelites to repent, and they continually refused to repent. But in the midst of Jeremiah, when we get to chapter 31, verse 31, we have this promise of a new covenant. Verse 31, behold, days are coming. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel not with, and with the house of Judah. Verse 32 says, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, let's stop right there. Think about what he's referring to. When he says, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Yeah, well, that's going back not just to the covenant of Abraham, but really the Mosaic law. Because when they were delivered from Egypt, they went to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and what did they receive on the mountain? Yeah, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments were representative of the entire Mosaic law that he would continue to reveal, you know, as you read through the books of Moses. Um, so the covenant that is being referred to in verse 32 is clearly the Mosaic covenant, what we think of as the Ten Commandments that were delivered from Mount Sinai. But God is saying that this new covenant that I'm going to bring to you is not like that covenant. It's not like that Mosaic covenant that you heard from the, from the top of the mountain, those Ten Commandments that you agreed that you would obey and you did not, all right? Because when we continue looking at Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 32, it says, It's not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although, although I was a husband to them. All right, so the implication here, when he talks about I'm going to bring a new covenant, and the new covenant is not like the old covenant, which they broke. The implication there is that this new covenant cannot be broken. The old covenant could be broken and was broken. The new covenant will not be broken. That's how it's going to be different. Otherwise, if the new covenant can be broken as well, then it's really no different, right? I mean, if the new covenant still leads to their judgment, then it's really no different. And how is it that this is going to be different? How is it that he can ensure with the new covenant that they will obey? Look at verse 33. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and on their hearts. I will write it and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Jeremiah is talking about the new covenant and the new covenant is very clearly connected to the regeneration of our heart, the, the receiving of a new heart, this idea that we're to be a new creation. But whether you're looking at the words of Moses or whether you're looking at the, Mos the words of Ezekiel or the words of Jeremiah here, what is very clear is that the regeneration of the heart leads to different behavior, mm -hmm. different attitudes. It's a different mindset. It doesn't mean that we're perfect from day one, but it does mean that there should be a, a very marked change from the old life to the new. And so th this morning, I think I was talking to uh, Gail Cheatwood. He was asking me about uh, grace versus free grace. Um, and, and free grace is a, is a word that's um, thrown around. And I, I don't think saying free grace is very helpful. Grace itself, we understand, is a free gift of God to us. Um, but sometimes um, people use free grace to, to say that, you know what, even, you know, if you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord, if you make that confession and then you slip back into your old patterns, you do all the same things that you did before, no, the grace is free. You're still saved. Um, but... 
That to me, I mean, when you understand the promises of God, going back to the Old Testament, the promises of circumcising your heart, of receiving a new heart and a new spirit, of, of writing the law of God upon your heart so that you will obey, that is a supernatural work of God. And if we're saying that we can receive a supernatural work of God on our hearts and then act the same way we did before, then what's the effect of that supernatural heart? It has no effect, right? I mean, the whole point was that God's name was profaned because people on the outside were refusing to obey God. They were continuing to rebel. They were continuing to seek after false gods. They were continuing to worship anything but the true God. And so one of the ways that God receives glory um, from our salvation, remember we saw that in Ephesians 2. Look at Ephesians 2 again. Go to, uh, yeah, Ephesians 2. Look at the, um, look at verses uh, 4 through 7. You know, just as a reminder, you, you saw 1 through 3, we're dead in our tra transgressions and our sins. These are all the ways that we acted. We were by nature children of wrath, sons of disobedience. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, even when we were dead in our transgressions and our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, he raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places. Verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The way that God shows the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us is not only by saving us, but actually putting us on display and allowing to people, the, the world to see that there is really a difference when God regenerates your heart. You know, that, that the world may not always comprehend the truths of God. The, the world may not comprehend why it is we follow after Jesus. But what should be unmistakable is that they see the effect of Jesus Christ in our lives. You know, and, and it's often that the real test um, of our faith is when we go through difficult times. Mm -hmm. You know, the real test is when we go through trials. You know, it, it's very easy. And I, I, you know, when you watch athletics, when you watch sporting events, you often see, um, you, you know, a boxing champion or someone mm -hmm. who wins an Olympic event. You know, they'll, they'll say, I, I praise the Lord God. And, you know, he, he's the one that gave me the strength. And, and which is wonderful. They, they should do that. But it's easy to praise God when things are well, you know, when you're receiving those victories. Um, I remember um, there was one um, Olympic sprinter by the name of um, Allison Felix. Um, she, she has been competing um, over the course of the last um, decades, but um, Allison Felix um, was a Christian, or is a Christian, I should say, and uh, she competed in events where she was, um, a lot of people thought she had a chance to win the gold. She lost to um, a Jamaican runner, um, so she came second. And, you know, when you think about Olympic events, I mean, you know, they train, you, you know, all throughout the year, for four years for this one event, right? So, I mean, you, you can imagine the letdown when, when you expect to win the gold, you don't win the gold. And, and I remember they interviewed her. Um, they asked her, you know, you know, this must be a great disappointment to you. And, you know, she was in tears, very understandably so. And, and it was very interesting. She, um, she said something to the effect of, but God is still good. And, um, and I thought, wow, that's, that's unusual. I, you don't see that very often, right? And then I found out later, you know, I think um, the next year or the year after that, um, I, I started seminary. And then I found out that her father is one of the seminary professors at the seminary I went to, right? Yeah, so that, that's, you know, when, when, when you're exposed to good theology, when you're exposed to the understanding of God's goodness in all circumstances, you can, you can go through a, a major disappointment like that and still be able to say God is still good. Yeah, that's that's Jeremiah as well. We talked about that last week. Jeremiah is seeing the temple burned down. His hope is being drained from him, but he is remembering the faithfulness of God. He, he still remember, remembers the faithfulness of God even in his darkest times. 
Um, so th these are, you know, this is often put to the test when we go through those difficulties and, and realize that sometimes those difficulties God puts in our way in order that we would show the world that God is still what's most important to us. And that no matter what happens to us in this life, the hope that we have coming can, can never um, thwart us, you know, d d despite whatever trials may come in the temporal life. Because we know e eternally that that's never going to be taken away. We, we know where we're headed. And sometimes, oftentimes, I would say it's through those trials that other people really see the genuineness of your faith. Um, look at First uh, Peter. Yeah, 1 Peter um, chapter 1, at the very start of 1 uh, Peter, getting close to the end of the uh, New Testament before Revelation and, and Jude and the three Johns, you uh, look at 1 uh, Peter chapter 1, and Peter says this, um, starting in verse 3, he says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You know what's interesting? If you know the historical backdrop, Peter is writing to Christians who are concerned about the persecution that has started from Nero. Fire burned in Rome, and a lot of people thought Nero's the one that, uh, that caused the fire. The reason was because the areas of Rome which were burned down, instead of rebuilding those neighborhoods... <laughs> so think about technology it just goes off at random times <laughs> i recognize this i recognize this so it's all right <laughs> yeah but you know the christians at that time the reason why people thought nero had started the fire is because instead of rebuilding the areas that had been burned down he actually ex expanded his palace to cover those areas so it started looking suspicious like he's the one that started the fire just so he can make, make his palace bigger well he needed a scapegoat he needed someone else to blame, so he blamed the Christians, saying, no, it was the Christians that uh, started this fire, and on top of that, we're going to start to execute them for this crime. And so starting in Rome, Christians were, were being killed. They were being put on display. They were being impaled right there in public um, for people to see. <laughs> they were made into an example. And so when you have this kind of persecution coming upon Christians, and now Peter is writing to people who are outside of Rome, but they're concerned that this persecution is going to reach outside. And if you're writing to a bunch of people who are overly concerned about their lives, about this persecution, that they're going to continue to be executed, how do you encourage them? You know, how do you start off by trying, how do you, if you're going to write a letter trying to encourage them, how do you start off by encouraging them? Well, I'll tell you how you, how Peter does it. He, he starts off by praising God in verse three. He says, blessed be the God and our father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And then verse four, to obtain an inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Verse five, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know how Peter encourages Christians? By reminding them of what can never be taken away in the future. And by reminding them that you still have reason to praise God, that you have inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, protected in heaven by God. I mean, that's, that, that is a marvelous promise, but then that's what leads into verse six. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, 
if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. But here's the so that. I always say the so that. The so that. You see the so that. It often points to a purpose, and that's why you want to look for those so that's. Verse 7, so that. Okay, why the trials? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those trials are so that the world may be able to see just how genuine your faith is. And it's going to result in the praise of the glory of God. Because when you say that I believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life, that, that our riches are truly in heaven, then nothing that happens temporally can ever take away that future promise, right? You know, nothing that happens temporally can, can, can even, even bring any kind of um, taint to the blessed promises we have in the future. I mean, that's one of the beautiful promises of the new heavens and the new earth in the future when, when all things, all old things will pass away and everything will be recreated new and, and we'll be up in heaven with glorified bodies um, in a new existence. And, you know, all the things that happened in the past will be history, you know, at that point. You know, none of it's going to matter. At that point, we're going to be in the blessed presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so all that to say that, you know, part of the new creation, when we talk about the effect that it should have on us, you know, it's, it's all about um, how our, our mindset operates. It's all about how we respond to trials. It's all about who we worship. And, and nothing in this life, no trials can ever take it away. And that really goes back to Job, right? The, the challenge from Satan, you know, take away all the, all the ways that you have blessed Job and he will curse you. And, and you know what, Job, he ended up having to be rebuked by God, but he also glorified God because no matter how hard Satan went after him, he refused to curse God. You know, God made an example of Job to Satan, say, look, you say that he will curse me. If you take away all these things, go ahead and take away all those things. And guess what? He still hasn't cursed me. You know, so there's this cosmic battle. There's a spiritual battle that um, we see in Ephesians, but uh, that's evident there in Job. And uh, and it's it's really for us to show the world that there is a difference um, when we have a heart regenerated uh, by God. Um, Let's go back to this statement. Let's uh, let's read uh, through the rest of it. Okay, so it is um, the new creation is instantaneous and not a process. So we get that um, that in the new birth, the one dead in trespasses and sins is made a partaker of the divine nature and receives eternal life, the free gift gift of God. Now that's an interesting statement. In the new birth, the one dead in trespasses and sins. That's obviously all of us. We were all once dead in trespasses and sins. But we are made a partaker of the divine nature. Now, what does that mean? We are our partaker, partaker of the divine. Have we become God? No. no, we haven't become God. In what ways are we a partaker? Yeah, yeah, that's right. The Holy Spirit is, is in us. The Holy Spirit it resides with it. We are a temple of God now. The Holy Spirit resides within us. And not only that, but the church is what to Christ? The body of Christ. The body of Christ. You know, so we have a new head. You know, in fact, um, you will often see, and, and it's, it, it never comes across in the English translations, um, but there's a Greek word, um, doulos. Uh, when, when, the, when the writers of Scripture, in fact, if you're still on First Peter, look at First Peter 1, 1. Look at the very first, um, actually, Second Peter. Go to Second Peter 1, 1. Yeah. Second Peter 1, 1. The very first verse of Second Peter. Simon Peter, and it says, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. 
Well, you know what that word for bondservant is in Greek? It's doulos. And the word doulos in the Greek means slave. I am a slave of Christ. In fact, it's very often the case that the apostles would actually introduce themselves as being slaves of Christ. And we think of slaves, and I think the reason why you don't see it come up in the English is because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of um, emotional and historical baggage that comes with that word. You know, we, we think of um, the, the, the slavery days in, in the United States and, and even overseas, and, uh, and so that, that brings a lot of negative connotations. Um, but there is really nothing better than to be a slave of Christ. You know, to be a slave of Christ, you know, um, the, the difference between, between being a slave of Christ and being a slave of, of, uh, of someone who's uh, like someone like Egypt, you know, the, the Pharaoh of Egypt, is that we are slaves of Christ, but we are slaves of a, a master who loves us and wants what's best for us, right? He, he nurtures us. He, he grows us. You know, he, he provides what is good for us. He died for us, right? I don't mind being slave of someone who died for me to give me eternal life. You know, and, and these apostles often saw themselves as slaves to, to Christ. And it doesn't mean that they're doing something against their will, but it means that they could not possibly imagine following anyone else but Christ. You know, and Paul kind of builds on that as well in Romans 6 when he talks about you were once slaves to sin, but now you are slaves to righteousness. You know, and even more importantly, you're not just slaves to righteousness, you're, you're slaves to Christ. Um, so there, there's that concept that we are slaves to Christ. And so when we think about this statement that we are partakers of the divine nature, we have the Holy Spirit residing within us. We are part of the body of Christ, and, and we have a relationship with Christ that can never be broken. You know, so in that sense, I would say we are partakers of the divine nature, but to be careful to say that, no, we are not God himself, right? And then the next statement, um, that the new creation is brought about in a manner beyond our comprehension, solely by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth, so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel. Well, I think a lot of that is reflected in a lot of the verses that we just looked at, right? I mean, you're a new nature, you're given a new nature, and now, though we are slaves in Christ, it, we're, not, we're not puppets, right? I mean, we're not being controlled and forced into obeying God. I mean, when you, when we, as we're going through Ephesians, those first three chapters, it's all theology in order to, to, to help undergird the commandments that come in chapters four through six. And there are commandments because they're appealing to our will to obey God, to obey God and to do things uh, God's way. And so he, he does secure our voluntary obedience, and yet the work of the Spirit in our hearts um, ensures that that, uh, that will happen as well. So there, there's a sense in which we work with God in terms of our sanctification, in terms of our day-to-day -day, um, growing in Christ. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing that, you know, those who are truly in Christ, sometimes they'll go through seasons where they're just disobeying. And, that's, and, and what's beautiful is that when they're, they, they'll come back, and, and they'll come back not because, you know, not because they were reasoning through it and say, yeah, I really should come back, but they, they come back because you often see that God was weighing upon their heart. Um, that they've been away and they're not going to be blessed this way. You know, that, that, they're, that, they're, that they're not seeing the blessings of God in, in terms of their rebellion. And they, they start to desire those blessings of God again, and they end up coming back for that reason. And when they come back and, and you hear that being communicated, and in fact, I just heard that very recently from someone, when you hear that being communicated, it's a beautiful thing because you realize that even when we willingly disobey God, God is working to turn us back towards him. You know, it's a miserable, for, for, the, for, for someone who is truly in Christ, um, to walk away from God is a miserable, miserable experience. It's a sickness. 
Yeah, it's a, it is a sickness. It a yeah, it becomes a sickness, but uh, in, in our hearts, um, God withholds joy from us. He, he withholds that, uh, that the blessings of his presence. And, and eventually we, we start to realize, okay, I, I need to turn back. And that's, that's God's um, disciplining hand on us. That's how he chastises us. It's in order for um, us to turn back towards him. So there's a, obviously there's a process with regards to our growth that we're, we're both God is at work as well as us. You know, we, we do seek to respond in obedience, and, and uh, we are blessed by God as we do that. And even if when we walk away, God still protects us to ensure that we're not going to completely walk away. So that's a wonderful blessing. So this uh, new creation, um, it also says new creation is brought about in a manner beyond our comprehension. Now, I understand that because, you know, the supernatural work of God is not something that you can prove scientifically, right? I mean, you, you can't go into a laboratory and run experiments and say, yeah, this person has a new heart. That one doesn't. You can't do that. You know, but the new heart is spiritual and people that see your life should be able to see it. And, and though it is beyond our comprehension, I think we see very clearly in Scripture the promises going all the way back to the Old Testament, right? The promises that we will be made a new creation. So uh, I, you know, I understand what's being said here that it's beyond our comprehension, but it's not. Again, it's not like blind faith. You know, it's not like I have no idea how this happened, and and I have no, I have no idea where this came from. It just happened. And no, that's not the case at all. We can actually go to Scripture, go all the way to the beginning. We can go to Moses bringing the Israelites on the on the brink of the Promised Land, telling them that you are going to disobey God, and God's going to have to circumcise your heart. So from the very beginning, the idea that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God knew that was an issue all along, and, and He already had a plan to address it. Um, the Noahic Covenant. Uh, turn with me to uh, um, Genesis 9. Genesis 9-9. Uh, um, God had flooded the world, and we know that God had flooded the world because of sin. You get to Genesis 9-9. Um, God says this to Noah. Genesis 9, chapter 9. Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you, with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, the beast. Um, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by water of the flood, neither thou shalt, shall there be um, a flood to destroy the earth. This is the sign of the covenant. Verse 12, that I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all successive generations, I set my bow, verse 13, I set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and all the earth. You know, it's, um, you know, we know the month of June is gay pride month and they use the rainbow colors. And I've seen some, some Christians kind of fight back and try to reclaim that rainbow and say, well, you know what? The rainbow actually belongs to Christians. You know, the rainbow points back to the Noahic promises that, that God will never again flood the, flood the earth like he once did. And God flooded the earth for what reason? Sin. Sin. Yeah, yeah. He, he flooded it because of sin. And the reason why he has to make this promise is because he knows that sin is still an issue. I just promise I'm not going to deal with it in this way. It's still an issue, but I'm not going to deal with it by flooding the entire earth. What's he going to do instead? Well, that's why a few chapters later he calls Abraham. And he gives them the Abrahamic promise. And the Abrahamic promise, the blessings of the Abrahamic promise, they're connected to the Mosaic law. That if you obey, you get the blessings of the Abrahamic promise. But the Israelites show that it's impossible to obey the law. So what does God do? God says, I am now I'm going to replace the Mosaic covenant with a new covenant. 
and the new covenant is where I will write my law into your heart. Well, I will give you a new heart. And it is the new covenant now that the Mosaic covenant ends up being fulfilled. See, the, I'm sorry, the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant ends up being fulfilled. The Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. God promised, I mean, that was an unconditional promise from God. And yet initially it was tied to the Mosaic covenant. So in other words, if the Israelites didn't obey the Mosaic covenant, they didn't get the Abrahamic covenant. But because God is faithful to his promise, he replaced the Mosaic covenant with a new covenant where he would write his law upon his hearts. But the new covenant could not come unless one came who could satisfy the Mosaic covenant. And that would be his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would be the one to satisfy all the requirements of the Mosaic law. He would be the, he would be the perfect sacrifice to finally end the law. And he would be the one who would institute the start of the new covenant. That's why we, we celebrate that with the Lord's table, right? I mean, when Jesus Christ was up in the upper room, he's drinking the wine with, he's breaking bread, drinking the wine, and he tells them, this is for the new covenant. This is for the new covenant. It's amazing how all this ties together, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. Let's go ahead and read the rest of this. <clears throat> Very last point, um, um, that it's proper evidence. So talking about the new creation. Um, the, its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance, faith, and newness of life. Um, so I, I think there's, at this point, there's, there, there's absolutely no, I don't think there was any argument anyway, but there's no argument, right? Um, the, the new creation of God has a real valid impact upon our lives. Um, it, it shows the fruits of repentance. And I, I will say this, and I, I've been saying this um, in, in multiple ways, but... When we were converted, when we were regenerated, when we received that new heart, when we put our faith into Christ, um, we all started at different places. All right. I mean, what um, what God may do in one person's life may not be exactly what he does in another person's life. And, and I know from um, just interacting with many uh, mature believers um, who have proven faithful for decades and decades and who have worked with a lot of other people um, that struggle with sin. Um, is ongoing. It is ongoing. And, and for whatever reason, there are, um, for a number of Christians, there, there, there's usually one or two sins that just continue to just, just be a real issue. But you, you'll see the fruits of regeneration in other parts of their life. You know, when people are converted, there are things, there, there, are, there are effects that you see immediately. There are, there are old, old desires that are taken away immediately. You know, and there are new desires that are brought about immediately. But God doesn't do it all 100%. You know, that's the process of sanctification, and that's part of the glory that God receives, that we are continuing, continuing to examine ourselves. We are continuing to examine those ways that we fall short, and we are continuing to appeal to God. We're continuing to, to work through the Holy Spirit. We're continuing to repent. We're continuing to confess our sins, and, and, and we're, we're fighting the battle day by day in order to become a new, uh, in order to become just more conformed into the image of Christ. We already are a new creation. That has already been made evident. But we all have a different starting point. We might all have different speeds in which, you know, we are sanctified. We might have different speeds in which we understand the scriptures. You know, some people, it takes a little bit more time to understand. Other people pick it up very quickly. Um, but all, let me say this, that the real glory of God is not necessarily the, the speed in which you are sanctified, but it's really the effort by which you fight to be sanctified. You, you, you know, it's the continual battle. And, uh, and for us, um, I, I would really urge all of us uh, to have as much compassion as possible upon our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ um, who may be struggling at various points in various ways. 
um, and, and recognizing that um, the, the, the grace of God um, was there to wash away all of our old sins, but that all of us, um, we have various struggles in different ways. You know, what your struggle may be is not the same as what your struggle is going to be. What my struggle is not the same as your struggle. We all have different struggles, and we want to be compassionate towards that, but also be faithful to go back to the scriptures and say, you know what, let's, let's look at what the scriptures say. Let's look at how God calls us to handle this um, and how we can um, you know, get back on, on track with regards to our walk. So the new creation, it's a wonderful promise, um, but there is still a lot of work for us. Any other, any questions, any comments? I've been doing most of the, there hasn't been a whole lot of questions in, to, today. Um, but uh, hopefully this is, uh, has, has been good and helpful. All right. All right, let's go ahead and close out with a word of prayer then.